If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. If you'd like, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. It's page 511. Psalm 118. We have been in a series this summer of looking through the Psalms together, looking through some select Psalms as songs for the summer. We are calling it back to the future because in each of these Psalms, you'll find often Israel is in some current distress of some kind, and they look back to see what God has done in order to find hope and restoration as they face their current difficulty. And you and I, likewise, are coming back to these psalms in ancient Israel, seeing what God did through His people there, finding how He's reflected this very same story in the person of Jesus with a commitment to flesh out its implications and its narrative, its storylines in your life and mine, regardless of the things that we see immediately in front of us. So Psalm 118 We're going to look at that song. You'll notice I put a a key verses there. It's a refrain repeated three times for emphasis, but there's also because of a certain kind of energy needed. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. This is a song today. The word that I have for you today is to fight. Fighting. We've talked about praying. We've talked about giving praise at all times, but this morning we're going to talk about fighting, the time to fight. And... uh, In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Let me say a couple things quickly about Psalm 118, and then we're going to go ahead and and dig into it and see what God would say to us. The first thing I want to just note is this is a very popular psalm. It's quoted often in the New Testament, but its popularity extends even back to uh, scholars today. They believe that as five different songs work together into one. And so it's a little difficult to follow what's taking place. It's not the simplest of storylines in this psalm. And, uh, but it's, it's probably patchworked together some different songs. In fact, some of you, if you were able to go this last week or down to the park and hear the Beatles tribute band and either relive some glory days or just listen to some good old music, the, there, there's a Beatles song in which Lennon McCartney had snippets of three different songs and they didn't know what to do with them, so they just squished them together and made interesting bridges and it turned out all right. And that's kind of Psalm 118 here is we have different pieces of songs put together because they didn't want to let go of them, and we'll we'll note some of those as we go. The second thing is it's a public psalm. This song, uh, more than anyone we've looked at so far, is for the temple, for all the people to be spoken to in their presence, even the beginning when it says, let the house of the Lord, let the house of Israel, let the house of Aaron, let all who fear the Lord May the name of the Lord praise the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The priests stand out at the end of the psalm and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as the people are coming to offer the sacrifice. It's a very public psalm. And so you and I will work through it together as a people together. And then the last thing is this. It's also a prophetic psalm. We get confused by the word prophetic, thinking it only applies to predicting the future. As if... The Psalms or the Old Testament are only prophetic if the New Testament looks back and says, ah, 
Here's somewhere where Jesus was talked about. He was going to come and be born in Bethlehem, etc. And, and the future is predicted. And therefore, we have some apologetical evidence for something that God is really who he says is. That's not what I'm talking about. The psalm is prophetic in a different way. In a way that all of Scripture is prophetic in that it carries the life of God. The psalm was written at a time in which God came and delivered the writer or writers out of some kind of difficulty, and they're going to talk about that. The life of God was evident in a situation. When the New Testament came along, a thousand years later, and they're thinking about what happened with this man named Jesus, and they're rethinking the Old Testament, they see in this psalm, whoa, what Jesus went through and what we've experienced, has this really is reflected well in his life. And so they saw Jesus in the psalm. That's what I mean by prophetic. It also carries over to you and I. Because you and I are called to not approach the... We've not done our duty if we simply understand the historical setting of any of the books of the Bible. What we're called to is to take our lives and to push it into, to blend it with this old song because there's life in it. There is prophetic life in which God speaks to us in our here and now through the way back then and there. And so this psalm had an original setting. This psalm was looked at by the first century and said, wow, this applies today. And you and I are called to say, holy cow, this is for us today. There's something taking place here in which the life of God flows to us. That's what it means to be prophetic. The Spirit of God brings His life through this psalm to us. Okay, Psalm 118. We're going to say a couple things. The, the, the second point is the main one, but let's say the first thing there is. We're called to freedom. The first thing the psalm is going to talk about is being called to freedom. Let's work through these words just briefly together, and then we'll make a couple points. So he begins with the, the prelude, so to speak. Oh, give thanks to the Lord... For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's part of one of the songs here. And so let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. You can envision the chanting and the responsive reading. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Almost as if let the whole cosmos say, his steadfast love endures forever. Now, here's what happened to me, he says, verse 5. Out of my distress, I called to the Lord. Okay, out of my distress, I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. We are called to freedom. The Lord sets us free. Verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Conclusion, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Repeat, it is better to take refuge in the Lord, not just to trust in man who has limited authority. Your neighbors can do very little for your troubles. But neither can your governor, neither can your president, neither can your pastor, neither can your counselors. Anyone with authority, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Even the highest of exalted of mankind, I've concluded... That it's the Lord who set me free. Now, let's make a couple observations before we move on then to the heartbeat here. Called to freedom. The first is this. 
When we come to Psalms to hear the Lord, we are to connect through our experience with the Psalm. We are to connect through our experience with the Psalm. He says this, out of my distress, I call to the Lord. Now, here's what I know to be true from my own heart. Here's what I know to be true hearing your stories, whether in a common room or sitting at some private setting in which there is a display and putting out what you go through. Here's what I know to be true. And finally, because of what Scripture says, that we have times of distress. We have times of difficulty. Sometimes they're brought about by our own folly. The prodigal son leaves home. I don't want to have anything more to do with you. I'm going to go my own way. I want my money. And he squanders it. And by the Lord's equity in the world, when he ran out of money, he ran out of friends. Sometimes our folly brings about distress. But sometimes, if it's not just our folly, you may be a great manager of your money, but God is committed to something more deep in you. And for that reason, he brings distress The young man runs out of money and friends, and it says there was a famine in the land. A famine in the land. Well, God is the architect of the world, and he sometimes brings famine into our lives. Brings things that press us on every corner, so that we don't know what to do and we're desperate. Now, instead of running back home, which was the point of the famine, this young man runs further and takes up a job feeding pigs. And he's starving and wrestling with the pigs For food, when he finally realizes the servants in my father's house have food, I should go back home. Well, God brings those things about. Here's what I know. You have distressing seasons. You may be in one now. If you're not, bless the Lord, but you will be soon because God's committed to bringing them in order to continue to drive you and I home. Here's the awful reality. The awful reality is we forget God. We forget God. I don't know how. I don't know why. Sin, I have theological answers, but it makes no sense to me. But sin blinds our hearts and we forget God. Without troubles, the psalmist says, when I was afflicted, I went astray. And when I was afflicted, I returned. God afflicts us in order to bring us back home because we need him. And so we bring our experience to the psalm. Out of my distress... You bring your experience to the psalm. The second thing is this, praying through poetry. We will totally mess up coming and getting value from the Scripture if we try to take the poetic language of these psalms in their literal sense. We don't know what's happening to these authors of these songs. We don't know the particulars. The only thing we know is that there is distress, and his particular distress has something to do with other people. Uh, that's maybe not even necessarily true because it says the nations in a moment. And so it's very unlikely that he was a, a world-renowned individual, that all the world was against him. That's often not the case. But we don't know the particulars. And so if you and I can only come to this psalm when you have enemies, when your neighbor is really mad at you or your family member or friend, well, then you're never going to get life from this psalm except for the two or three times this happens in your life. No, instead... When he says, out of my distress and and my enemy who hates me, we're to recognize as we pray through these kinds of psalms that it is all circumstances, that there is an enemy that is bigger than the enemies that you occasionally experience in one another, that there's an adversary that seeks to align 
all circumstances against you to the best of his ability to destroy you. In fact, to devour you, if possible, like a roaring lion. And so we're to reflect and pray through this, recognizing that there is poetry here. So when he says in verse 7, The Lord is my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. You're not supposed to say, I don't think anybody hates me right now, therefore this psalm isn't for me. No. There are circumstances and difficulties and the things that cause your distress that are aligned against you. And this verse is for those because it's poetry. Called to freedom, connecting through your experience, praying through the poetic elements so that you can apply it to you no matter what the situation is. And then the last is this, learning through submission. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. What you and I are called to do when we come to the scriptures is to ally our experience to it, to recognize there's poetry and flexibility so the things that are particular in your life can match up with what's in Scripture. And then where it goes, you say, heart, go there too. Where it goes, you go. You submit your heart to the discoveries of these original writers because it isn't just another human individual, but these stories, God said, well, I'll select this song. There's 150 of them here. There was thousands of psalms written in Israel's days, thousands of songs. God didn't choose most of them, but this one he chose to carry his life to you. And so his expectation is that you would submit your heart to what it instructs. Submit your heart to its understanding. So what this man or woman experiences is this. In my distress, not giving you the details it had to do with other people. That's about all I'm going to tell you. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me and set me free. I concluded, I concluded that my heart was easily deceived and wanted to trust in other people to be my rescuers. I concluded that I wanted to trust in other people to be my rescuers. And I had to conclude that that was not true. That it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in other people, including those with authority. Those with some measure of power. And so he's learned a lesson. And you and I are then to call to learn this lesson now. Out of it flows this second point then. And here's where we want to spend our time today. Called to fight. Called to fight. Now, the context here, let's, let's read these verses and, we'll, and then we'll say a few things. All nations surrounded me. Now, unless this is in particular David, which the psalm makes no claim to that, uh, it, it's metaphorical language. It's everything is against me. That's what he's saying. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord... I cut them off. That's interesting. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The verb there is the same verb that is used later in other contexts for circumcision. Okay, so we're going to get a little bloody and a little messy. I cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Verse 11, they surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. It wasn't enough to say all nations surrounded me. Now, He's surrounding me on every side. I want you to know how bad it is, how overwhelmed I feel, how much the circumstances are too big for me, how much the people are too big for me, 
How much the health issue is too big for me. It's surrounding me on every side. There is no way out. I cannot see a pathway through this. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Verse 12, they surrounded me like bees. We're in the summertime, so most of you have probably barbecued this summer. Hamburgers or hot dogs, and here come the bees. They love them. And I don't know what it is about us, but they know how to keep about six inches from your face. Something probably to do with your body temperature, but they seem to hover right around your face and your legs and ankles, and it's a distressing experience. When the bees won't go away, and much less if you had a hive that is beginning to chase you. But he's saying they surrounded me like bees. They were not going away. In fact, they were causing me great anxiety. I'm swatting and swiping everywhere, and I can't get rid of them. They won't go away. I don't know what to do. It's actually maybe even a little fearful. They went out like a fire among thorns. We know that thorns, they dry up, and they burn in a heartbeat. The fire rages through, and it's gone. It's over. The battle is done. This is how destructive these circumstances are. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among the thorns. What's he say? The third time, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Okay, we're going to come back to that. Let's read the next three verses. He concludes then, in kind of wrapping this, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. Have you had the experience where you feel like if just another person says something or another unexpected thing happens, it is the opportune time for you to completely lose it? You might go off the rails. You might say things you regret. You don't know what's going to come out of you because you are tottering on an edge. And sometimes you experience that flat tire at that moment or that ticket at that moment or that argument from that family member. Something that you are right on the edge. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. He's concluding then, even though he says I cut them off, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. And now even though he said, I cut them off, he says, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. Repeats, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. That's interesting. We'll note it and then come back to it. He's saying, I cut them off in the name of the Lord. But then he says, frankly, it's the Lord's hand that did this. And that's interesting. Now, let's say a couple things about this then called the fight. Called to fight. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. This is not a time. There are times, turning points in your life, forks in the road, tuning points for what God is trying to adjust in you, in which you face decisions and you face a time of needing to make a decision. These are yes and no moments. These are not gray moments. These are not maybe moments. These are not, I would like to try. Yoda says, don't try, just do. These are times in which we're called to act. This is not a personality issue. Some personalities are decisive by temperament. And they may be inclined to this. 
But every single individual who is the Lord's will come to a point in which they have this distress. And they have things in which they call on the Lord for freedom to be delivered. And the real thing that God's right hand is going to do is to stroke some life into them, fan into flame something that says, you must cut them off. You must make a decision. You must act. And I want to talk about this and how this looks. And the first thing is this. It is acting in boldness. There will come a time, if you haven't had it, that you will. It will be repeated. Thankfully, it doesn't happen all the time. We wouldn't survive. But God will call upon you to fight, to act boldly. To act boldly. I cut them off. I cut them off. I have not, I believe, in the six some odd years that I finishing up, have been here, I don't believe I have yet illustrated with the Lord of the Rings. So, you will give me permission to do my very first Lord of the Rings illustration. It says it's so tired, but it's such an exceptional scene that I need to use it for this. So, there is a time in this movie in which Gandalf, the leader, and all the nine of the fellowship are underground in caves. And there is an enemy coming, a Balrog, a spirit from the underworld full of flame and fire and evil. And there is being chased, and they come to a chasm and a small bridge, and everybody's run over. Gandalf is last, and he alone has some capacity to resist, but even his powers are limited. And he turns back and faces this fierce enemy who flexes his muscles and roars quite frighteningly, so much so that we decided not to show a clip because it's a little disturbing. And Gandalf takes his staff, and with a vigor that somewhat can give you goosebumps, he thumps it into the ground, having said, you shall not pass. You shall not pass. He speaks with an authority. He speaks with a power. He speaks with an authorization. He advocates for his role. He talks about being a secret keeper, with, uh, you know, all the lore in the, in the trilogy. And he thunders this thing down, and this being shrinks back. And he experiences victory. Now, the story, his, he does fall there, and he has to battle this enemy some more. But the point is this. I can't even do justice because I can't bring myself in a pretend moment like this to speak with the kind of conviction that that example illustrates. But I will tell you this, that you have moments, and I have had them, whether you have to go to a park or on a walk, whether you have to go into a bathroom and close the door and throw it on the fan, but you speak to God, and it is with such fierceness, it is such determination, it is desperation, and you say, God, I have to have this, or I cannot do this. I remember when I first became a Christian, I had grown up in a Christian home, but had lived my self-centered life, and then I became a Christian, and I go to a school up in Salem, and it's a Christian college, and I thought this was going to be tremendous, but I found that there was every opportunity to continue the same sins that I was pursuing at that time. And I remember realizing this verse stuck into my head. The foundation of the Lord stands firm. Nevertheless, the foundation of the Lord stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His. And here's the kicker phrase. Everyone who confesses the Lord must turn away from wickedness. 
And I realized this is a do or die moment here, Mike. I have just given my life to the Lord in a fresh way. I have turned from sins that were grabbing hold of me and pulling me down to death. And now I'm in an environment that I think is going to be supportive. And I find these same things are available to me here. I cannot. It was with absolute and utter death in mind that I said, I cannot go down that path. If I give in again, I am going to die Not that I would die physically, I didn't mean that. But my soul would again be pulled into a path of enslavement. And there is a time and a season that you have to have a yes, or a time and a season that you have to have a no, and nothing in between. We're called to fight. We're called to fight. Uh, I got up really early yesterday morning, and uh, my wife likes a garage sale, And I think there's an unwritten code that those of you who garage sale at some point, you also must spend 14 hours for 25 cent items on your lawn and make $32.74. So I was up at five something yesterday and she went off to do things with the garage selling and I laid on the couch and had the great opportunity to watch again Big Cat Diary. All about lions and leopards. And it's an interesting thing, but here's what I saw yesterday. And I thought, Lord, this is an illustration. Here's what I saw. And the, the Range Rovers are there, and they've got the cameras, and they're tracking these prides of lions. And there's this, there's this male lion. He's the king over this family here. And here come two young male lions. So the king here has the big, discolored, huge, matted fur, and these young Guys, they don't have much whiskers, right? And they're coming, and they're going to assault to take over. And this is the life of these families. And I'll tell you, I was stunned to watch this lion's countenance change. Even this fierce male lion got ready to fight to defend his family against these two that were coming to take him down. And you could see it pass over his face, the way his jaw, the way his eyes. He prepared to fight to defend what was his. And I thought that's exactly what there are times when you and I are called to do. To put upon our countenance and to fight with boldness. You must determine it is life or death. I will go in this direction. I will not go in that direction. Jacob had this same thing. When he was coming back after 20 years, his brother wanting to kill him, he had fled. He now has a family, and his heart is fearful. And the angel of the Lord shows up the night before. And it says Jacob wrestled with the Lord. Wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And the Lord said, let go of me. He said, no. He said, what's your name? And the Lord wouldn't answer him. I won't let go of you until you bless me. Now listen, he's wrestling with God. He's fighting with God. And God confirms and affirms this behavior and says, well done. He blessed him. Now there was a scar that came with it. You will not escape unscathed. Nevertheless, you are called to fight. And at times, to fight with God himself. God, if you don't give me this, I'm going to die. There are different things that we're called then to fight for. Some things we might call addictions or broken places. There are things with alcohol. There are things with pot. There are things with pornography. There are things with lying. There are things with anger. There are things with swearing. There are things with adultery. There are things with your thoughts. Things that grab a hold of you with a power that you find sometimes you're helpless before. You are called to fight 
Not only is there some sense in which you're called to resist these, but there are turning points. There are turning points in which you say, God, I'm going to die if you don't come. I cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And you must fight fiercely to the death. Frankly, it is to the death. And I'm not talking about you might get in some drunken accident, but I'm talking about the death of your own soul and heart before God. It destroys you. It destroys you. If this is something that assaults you, you sit there and you think I'm talking about you and I have no idea your thoughts because you know how powerful some things are in your life. And I'll tell you, you do what you must to go and fiercely get to God and fight. You cut off everything that it takes so that the scriptures actually come and say, it is better to go maimed in this life if your eye is sinning in such a manner, pluck it stinking out of your head. Better to be blind. What fierce language. If your hand sins against you, cut it off then. Now, this is not a very popular thing to say. It wasn't popular when Jesus said it, much less to repeat it. It's difficult to understand. There was a church father. There was a church father who took it literally and later in his life says, I think it may have been figurative. But I'll tell you something. While he probably made a mistake in interpretation, I'll tell you this. I bet you the Lord deeply honored such an act, even though there was a mistake written into it. Eliezer comes, and the people of Israel are sinning, and they have begun to take wives from the nations around them right after being delivered. And there was someone with audacity comes into the temple, and they were beginning to copy some of the behavior of the nation surrounding them so that their sexuality and intimacy and worship and religion was being taken place. And Eliezer the priest comes and with a spear stabs them both through right at the entrance to the temple. And God blesses that. Oh, there is a zeal and an earnestness and a deep desire at times that it is exactly what God calls you to, to fight, to fight with great boldness, not driven by personality, but driven by great boldness. Jesus says the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. You may have difficult situation. One of the most difficult things you and I face, one of the most difficult things you and I face is to be married. You don't realize how selfish you are until you get married and then until you have kids. One of the hardest relationships there is. Your own heart is a cesspool of bad stuff. Your selfishness, your insensitivity, your envy, your criticism, your anger, and your unforgiveness, and then directed at that person whom you love most. To destroy willingly, to watch the hurt only to be satisfied with what you have fleshed out and then only to hate yourself for it. There is no more difficult relationship than our marriage relationship. And I'll tell you this, every marriage will come. Every marriage will come to a place where you must fight. You must fight. Wife, you must fight. There are times when your heart is sinking out of disrespect and you are losing respect and you're losing a battle and it's getting worse. It may not always be showing up quite yet, but you know what's taking place in your heart. And you are sinking. And your thoughts about your husband 
are beginning to destroy you. And I'll tell you, he knows. He might not know what those thoughts are, but he feels it. Men, your thoughts and lack of affection and caring and being kind to your wife and the hardness and the working heart that you would embrace, the heart that can go to work and get the job done and comes home and has the same neglect, you begin to see that you are moving into a heart of stone towards your wife. I'll tell you something. There is no greater challenge than for you to face these and fight. I will fight to break up that heart of stone. You may think she doesn't realize. She does. She knows your distance. She knows what's growing in you. If she were to be free, she'd say, I've seen this for months now or maybe years. I've seen this thing growing. I'll tell you, there's nothing more challenging and there's nothing that will more surely tell you that you'll be called to fight in with a marriage. There's some fighting that has to do with your kids or your grandkids, especially the ones as they've become adults and they move off into their own. And they're male responsible for their own decisions. They're not six anymore. You can't put the channels of protection around them. And yet their life before God is going down a path that is death. And you can see it. And there is nothing that breaks your heart more, perhaps even more than your spouse, because they don't fight with you as much. Your kids live in another city now. But your heart aches for them. You're called to fight. You're called to learn how to pray and fight for them. They may never hear a word of what you say. You may not even have permission to say such words to them anymore. But before God, you are fighting. Before God, you have begun to fight for your kids. There are ministry callings. There are health situations. The reason he says three times in the name of the Lord I cut them off is because it's not easy to do. We have to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. It's not easy to live in this fierce determination. And there are things that you feel called to, and you have to fight to move in those directions. There are things that you feel called to in your spiritual growth, in your personal life. You may feel called to prayer, and all you do is sit in guilt over how little you pray. You may be called to read God's Word, and if we had to have the honesty test, you'd say, I never read it, hardly. Or I don't read it. It is not food to my soul. Man, I want to be in God's Word. I want to guard my tongue. I love talking. It says that gossip is like a sweet morsel that goes down. I'll tell you, it's sweet. I love to talk about other people and then I hate it and I fight it and I do it again. There may be things of growth that you want to pursue. You have to fight in boldness. It may be, I was going to say as simple as it isn't simple, but here's the reality. Sometimes we have dull and distant hearts. We come to church. We go through church But the truth is, your heart has been growing distant towards God. The days of fervency have been lost. Maybe you're just too tired. If you were truthful, you would have to say, frankly, at times I'm bored with God. I'll tell you something. That dullness of heart, that distance 
turns into something more. Bring a difficult circumstances right next to it. Bring a betrayal. Bring an accusation that is false. Bring a loss in a circumstances financially, something in health, something with your family. Bring some kind of trauma next to that dull, distant heart. I'll tell you what will happen. It will become an angry heart. It will become an embittered heart. You'll still go to church. Most of you, some of you will abandon, but most of you, church has become a disciplined part of life. You want to keep face in front of families and yourself. You'll still go, but you'll sit in church and you will now have a heart that is hard. You will now have a heart that is angry and you will not know what to do with it and you come and you frankly feel like if, I, if nobody knew, I wish I wouldn't have to be here. I wouldn't want to face the looks and the accusations and the questions, where are you? Because I don't really want to be here. And then you say, I don't even want that feeling. What is going on in my heart? I'll tell you, it's a day to fight. I cut them off in the name of the Lord. Now, this isn't just the, the bolstering up of your psychology. This fighting is also in faith. This fighting is an act of faith. I'm going to move more quickly through this last because I lost a little track of time here. You don't know the reason I lost track of time is sometimes the second service. I've preached through the first or whatever, and you think, I just don't even know. Did I even say what I wanted to say? Did I get out of my heart what's been put in? And sometimes you don't even know what's been put into your heart, and you have this vague sense of what you want to preach and what you're called. What is the word of the Lord? It is to fight. What does that mean? How to get that through? I'll tell you this. My own heart, but I'll tell you this. I have sat with many of you. Some of you are in the room. I've sat. Sometimes there's tears. I've sat with my own tears. I've sat with frustrations. I've sat in my office. I've sat at a park. I've sat at McDonald's. Different places. I know that there's distress. I want to say a word to a particular group. And that is the discouraged. I, would, I, I want to say the word depressed, but then that's going to, a bunch of people say, oh, I don't have depression, and they're going to use a clinical definition. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean it, but I'll say this. The discouraged and the depressed. Here's the thing I find most frequent with my heart and yours is a passive response to wallow in the difficulty that you're facing. I will tell you the truth. You will have to come to a day when you fight. You say, I cannot do this. I don't care if you curse in that day. I, I meant swear, not curse in the, in the biblical word. I, I, I don't care what fierceness of language. There, I'll tell you, there is a time to say hard things to God. Jeremiah says at one point, God, I feel like you've deceived me. I feel like you've deceived me. You cannot go wrong taking your complaint to God. It is a part of fighting. And I want to tell you that those of you who are down and discouraged, you're over a, under a weight of a cloud. You feel like fighting is the last thing you can do. Well, I'll tell you, pick something, because I'll tell you what you can do. You can go out in your driveway at 10 o'clock tonight when it's cool and dark and nobody sees you can lay down on your driveway and say, God, I need you. All right? I just gave you something any depressed person can do tonight. That can be fighting. I have done that. That can be fighting. I 
need you. I need you. Fighting is also by faith. It is not just your personality. It is by faith. It is invigorated. It is a life that comes because of God. It is a life that has power because of God. David fights Goliath. All of Israel is frightened. All of Israel won't go out. David, smaller, all these things, no armor, no big sword. And he says, in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord, I will fight this Philistine. And he fights because it is driven by faith. There's also then finally acting in hope. Calling to fight is driven and infused by hope. The reason we are called to fight is because God is fighting for us. The Old Testament presents a picture of God fighting a holy war. Of God fighting a battle. God is fighting a battle on your behalf. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come down because we're going to transition from this into communion. But God is fighting a battle on your behalf. God comes to the world. You and I have fallen. He could declare this is the right way. He could erase your sins. You wish they were gone in an instant. He doesn't do it that way. I don't know why. He asks you to fight. There are spiritual beings that have rebelled against God's authority and now sought to destroy the earth. God could declare, you are second rate. You are not Yahweh. You are not the Lord. He doesn't do that. He declares it, but then he enters into battle with these beings. These beings are so powerful, so full of glory, that in fact, in the book of Jude, it says that the people did not rebuke them, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So glorious and full of glory and power were they. When these beings have shown up on earth at times, they have been so astounding to us that mankind have fallen down to worship. And, and the ones not in rebellion have says, no, don't do that. Stand up. I am like you created. But these beings are powerful, glorious beings. And some of them are in deep rebellion. And they want to deceive you and destroy you. And God has been warring with them from the beginning, so that over and over and over in the Psalms it says he is a God above all gods. He is a king above all kings. He has a name above every name. He is a power above all powers. Let all of the heavenly beings worship him. Those who are in favor and those who are in rebellion, he is the Lord. He has been working on your behalf so that he sends Jesus to bring about the destruction of the powers of the principalities and the powers and the rulers, one of them being, incidentally, death. Death is connected to the spiritual powers in heavenly places, and Jesus has come to defeat death. And so he gives this pattern of hope because he has battled on your behalf. And so it brings me in this last thing, which is our point of communion, then called the feast. Called the feast. These Symbols here are the symbols of communion. This feasting is to be with both imagination and recognition. It's found in the last part of this psalm. I won't go through it, but it talks about gates and talks about the stone that the builders rejected. Uses all this symbolism to say this is what God's done. And the ultimate symbolism we've been given at this point in our history is these pictures of a broken body Jesus and a bloody Jesus that made a promise and commitment to you. 
And so we're called to use our imagination as you fight the individual fights of your life to know that God is fighting the big fight. As you find your deliverances, God has worked the great deliverances. As you experience a salvation and an answer to prayer, God is working the big salvation. With your imagination, you see the hand of God and you feast on His glory and goodness. And as we come then to these symbols here, we're to recognize that these are pictures of the Lord. These are pictures of Jesus. He says, in the day you eat of it, as often as you gather together, you take this bread, which is broken as a remembrance of you, my body broken for you, for you, for your brokenness. And this cup of juice from a, a grape that has been crushed and turned into living wine is a symbol of blood because I was crushed, but I'm alive. I'm working in you new life. And so this is a symbol and seal of my covenant for you. You take this cup because I'm going to work it out in your life. You fight because I'm fighting for you and with you. As we take communion this morning, I want to invite you then to feast, to fight because God has given you great victory. Our worship team is going to worship over you as you come down the aisles. There are stations at both corners, all four corners. There'll be prayer ministers. You could come forward now at each of these corners because we want to make these moments. If you want to have joined in prayer with you to fight, that's what these people are for at the corners. But you take one of these pieces of bread that is a symbol. You take one of these cups, a symbol of blood, and you take them in as an act of will. I will choose the Lord. Let me invite you to stand And as the worship team worships over you, would you come and with your imagination recognize in these symbols the Lord. Thank you for listening to Willamette Community Church's sermon series in the Psalms. Join us again next week as we continue our study.